The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Why don't you join with me for a word of prayer as we look at the story of the transfiguration together. Father, we just come before you and ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth found in your word because your word is always revealing to us your son, Jesus Christ. And though at some level we feel that Jesus is such a familiar person to us, at other levels we have to acknowledge that there's still so much of who he is that we have yet to learn and understand to the depth of his character, his heart, who he is. And so give to us that insight as we look at the story of the transfiguration when he shined in glory that day before the disciples. And so we just pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, my uh, father is this very unassuming and humble person. And he is retired now, but before he retired, he was a surgeon. And, um, you know, my dad is always one of these guys that just doesn't seem to know how the world works. And so as a family growing up as a kid, we would just always tease my dad, you know, just he's the guy that can't seem to do anything right, you know, in terms of, you know, just um, not get really getting things sometimes. And so we would have a lot of fun kind of making fun of him growing up. And I remember that there was this time when I actually had an opportunity to visit him in the hospital and actually see where he worked. And that experience would radically transform my view of him because suddenly I saw him in his work setting. And I remember seeing these men who worked alongside him saying, you know, your dad is this really gifted and amazing surgeon. And uh, we all respect him so much. And I would meet the OR nurses that worked with him and they would just rave about him about what an awesome doctor my dad was. And if you're a kid and you actually see a surgical center, uh, you just, it's very intimidating, if not frankly terrifying, to see all of these people in these scrubs and these face masks. And, and, and you don't know what's going on and you think, wow, this is where my dad works. And this is what he does for a living. He just cuts people open and, and heals them and makes them better. And it's weird that I only knew my dad in the context of my family, of this guy who comes home and eats dinner with us. Um, but suddenly I saw my dad in a completely different light that he is this awesome guy, this amazing man who can do these crazy things that I could never even imagine. And I think that's happening in this story that we're looking at. These, these disciples have been following Jesus for quite some time now. But up on this mountain, something is revealed about this Jesus that they're following that I think none of them could have imagined. And I want to look at the story of Jesus on this mountaintop, shining with glory in the presence of his disciples. This experience would have such a powerful impact on his disciples that years later, Peter would write about that experience in his letter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 18, it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So this experience seemed to have impacted Peter in a way that never quite left him until the end of his life. Well, I'm going to, Kim read from the Matthew 17 account of it, and I'm going to actually look at the Luke account, in Luke chapter 9, verse 28 to 36. And it says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter, uh, leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, uh, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. I think if we're honest, the story of the transfiguration uh, actually really confuses us. Uh, the facts of the story aren't hard to follow. That's not the confusing part of it. The confusion comes when we try to understand it at a deeper level. What's really going on here? Why did this happen? What is the significance of this event? And I think in order to understand that, we have to look at what took place that day on the mountaintop in the context of the whole story of the Old Testament. Because one of the things that we have to know is that the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so to really know what was the meaning on that mountain, we have to go to the Old Testament and see what was it that was being fulfilled in that moment. And I think one of the places to start is to simply ask, why were Moses and Elijah there with Jesus? Well, one of the things that Bible scholars tell us is that Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. And so by standing with them, it meant that everything in the law and the prophets, in other words, the whole sum of the Old Testament was pointing ahead to Jesus. And he was the fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. Moses spoke about Jesus over 1,500 years before Christ was born. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And now Moses is standing with Jesus to show that he is the fulfillment of what God had promised all those years ago. The prophet Malachi predicted that in the last days, an Elijah, an another, a second Elijah would come. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. This was actually a reference to John the Baptist. 
And the whole point of John's ministry was to point to Jesus. As John would say, I must decrease and he must increase. This particular reference that we, I just read is so important because it says that at the appearance of Elijah would begin what the Old Testament called the day of the Lord. This would be the final chapter of God's plan of redemption. In other words, Jesus is the center of everything that the Old Testament spoke about. I think that's why on that Emmaus road after the resurrection, Jesus helped two of his followers to see this truth. In Luke 24, verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For all the promises find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. But here is the question. In what way did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? And when you look at the New Testament, there are so many expressions of that. But let me just point out one way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, particular to the story of the transfiguration. There is a temple theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. And when I talk about a temple theme, when I say a temple, what I simply mean is this. A temple is where heaven, where God dwells, meets earth, where we dwell. That is the simplest definition of a temple. And we find this temple theme at the very beginning of the Bible in the creation account. Over these course of seven days, God is in essence creating a place where heaven and earth can dwell together. And so he creates a garden where he can dwell among his people and have fellowship with them. But as you know the story, Adam and Eve would rebel against God and sin. And they would be cast out of the garden. And it's as if heaven and earth were ripped apart now. And so much of the rest of the story of the Old Testament is how can we once again discover heaven joining earth? And throughout the Old Testament, you find these temple moments. And probably the most obvious one is when Moses would build the tabernacle. And then years later, Solomon, David's son, would build a more permanent temple in Jerusalem. And in each of those moments, this presence of God's glory came down as a fire and stayed there with that temple to show God has come to his people. He is present there among them. But there are these other temple moments found in the Old Testament. And some of the most significant ones, interestingly, take place on mountaintops. And interestingly, two of the most important mountaintop temple experiences take place with Moses and Elijah. When Moses was leading God's people, God showed himself to them on Mount Sinai. And when he appeared, the entire mountain shook and it lit up like a Christmas tree with lightning and fire and smoke. And in the days of Elijah, he challenged the pagan prophets and priests on top of Mount Carmel. And there on that mountain, Elijah prayed and fire came down from heaven 
to basically consume Elijah's sacrifice. And it once again demonstrated that God was with his people. But now this brilliant display of God's glory on this mountaintop was revealed through Jesus himself as he radiated light like the sun. In other words, what the story is saying to us is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of heaven meeting earth. Every temple experience in the Old Testament was pointing ahead to Jesus, the true temple. And through the cross where he died, Jesus would now join heaven and earth together. God once again dwelling with his people. That's why, interestingly, the first chapter of John reads so similarly to the first chapter in Genesis. And that's not an accident. Genesis begins with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the word, referencing Jesus. In Genesis, it says, God declared, let there be light. And in John's gospel, he says the same thing. Jesus came as the light of the world. John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the question is this, why did John do this? Why did he parallel Genesis 1 in his letter, in his gospel? I think what John is trying to say is this, that heaven and earth met in the creation story, and so now there is a new creation story being told through Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. In other words, in the coming of Jesus, the message is that God has now finally come to dwell among his people. That is temple language. And so it's not surprising that in the final week before Jesus would go to the cross, what we call the Passion Week, Jesus spent almost his entire week at the temple in Jerusalem. He was sending a very clear message to the people of Israel that the true center of worship would not be in this physical building anymore but it would be found in his work, what he had come to do. Earlier in the Gospel of John, there's the story of Jesus cleansing the temple of money changers. And the Jews asked, by what authority do you do this? Who gives you the right to go chase out these people? And in John chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, it records this exchange with them. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again. In three days, they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, as most of you know, if you get on an airplane 
and you fly to Jerusalem this moment, and you go there to that city, there is not a temple there anymore. In fact, a Muslim mosque stands in the place where Solomon's temple once stood. An interesting exchange would take place during that week that Jesus spent in the temple with his disciples in Luke chapter 21, verse 5 to 6. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you have seen here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Less than 40 years after Jesus spoke those words, the Romans would destroy the temple in Jerusalem in the midst of a Jewish revolt. And you know, here's the thing. When I was growing up as a kid in the church, one of the things that I, I would hear sometimes about all this talk about end times prophecy was this. Now, one of the signs before Jesus would come back was that the temple in Jerusalem had to be rebuilt. It's what they call the third temple, right? And they said that until that temple is built in Jerusalem, Jesus will not return. But you know, that view of the end times is a total misunderstanding of what all of that temple imagery was pointing to. It was pointing to Jesus as the ultimate temple. And therefore, there is no longer a need for a physical temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the Apostle Paul will take this temple theme one step further. And he would say that now because Jesus lives in us through the Holy Spirit, he argued that we as believers have now become the temple of God. There will never again be this physical temple until the renewal of all things takes place, right? And there's this sense that we are the temple now. There is no physical place to look to, to find the presence of God on earth because he is with us, the church, the people of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, he says, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's the amazing teaching of Scripture. What was so significant about Jesus glowing like a light bulb on that mountain was to say that heaven and earth finally meet in the person of Christ. And in that meeting, what he has created is temples out of every one of us, that the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. Let me just give you two implications of that, and we'll wrap up here. The first one is this, is this assurance that God is always with us, no matter what we go through. I don't know if you feel the same way I do, but I do not know what is happening to our nation right now. I mean, watching that, that street scene in Kenosha with a teenager running around with an AR-15, shooting people in the midst of these protests, I don't know where all of this is headed. 
I really don't. It really worries me a lot. But in another level, I think this message is for us in this season, that God is with us. And he's through every crazy season of our life that we will go through with us. Maybe the things that you're going through have nothing to do with the COVID pandemic or all this stuff happening with Black Lives Matter. But maybe it's a a private pain that you're going through right now. But again, I want to say to you that the message of Christ, the temple, bringing heaven to earth, is that God is always with us. Hebrews 13 verse 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you really believe that? Imagine how you might live your life differently if you truly believe that truth. That no matter what you go through, the God who sent his son to die on a cross will always, always be with you. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34 to 39, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May that be a promise that you cling to always because if you are in Christ, you are the temple of God because Christ dwells in you and he has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The second thing that I think we can cling to in this promise is this. That God will cause us to grow into ever-growing Christ-likeness because of Christ in us. You know, it's interesting. After Mount Sinai, after God revealed himself in such a powerful way, that story does not end well at all. Moses comes down from the mountain and finds that during the time that he was on the mountaintop meeting with God, that the children of Israel had turned to idolatry. And had made a golden calf and were worshiping it, saying, this is the God that saved us. Elijah, after that powerful experience on Mount Carmel, when God revealed himself, fell into a deep depression and basically wanted to die. Why? Because he said that even after this great event, there was no revival in the land. And he thought he was the only one that was following God in the entire nation. That's the sad way that both of those stories would end. But the promise that we have in that transfigured Jesus on a mountain is so much greater. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 26 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of stone 
and will give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah would put it as God's mind will be in our mind so that we will obey his laws. And what Paul would say years later is you have the mind of Christ in you because the spirit of Christ is with you. And so we have the hope of change. We have the hope of growth. That in the midst of our sin, we are not stuck there. But we can experience the kind of transformation that the first disciples did. Because that same spirit rests in us. And so the invitation to us is to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And as we learn a life of dependency on him, we can experience the true heart change that I think all of us long for in our lives. That is the significance of what happened 2,000 years ago on a mountain. It was a declaration that heaven meets earth through the person of Jesus Christ. And because Christ is in me, God is with me always through whatever I go through in this life. He is for me, not against me because of his love for me. Let's pray. Father, may the truth and the meaning of what happened that day 2,000 years ago when your son transfigured on the mountain and shone in glory speak to our hearts in the season that we're facing right now. As we go through this global pandemic and the unrest of civil uh, unrest because of the, the racial strife in our country. Not to even mention all of the struggles that we face personally. We pray, Father God, that this message would be a genuine message of comfort to us. That you are always with us. That your presence is near to us. So help us to have the faith to call upon you in these times of trouble to lean on you and depend on you and know that we have a God who is near to us, who hears our prayers and who cares and loves for us, loves us. For we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, I want to invite you to come to the Lord's table as we take the communion together. And if you have those elements with you, if you wanted to just um, peel back the the clear plastic to take out the, the bread. Um, when we take this communion together, it's just a very powerful reminder that God is with us, that we are the temple of God because Christ resides in us. And so his body, his blood, as we actually consume it, as strange as it sounds, is a reminder of that truth. Christ in me, God always with me, God for me, the God who gave his son for me and loves me. And so let me invite you to go ahead and take the bread first, and then you can go ahead and take the cup, and then uh, just pray for a few moments, and then we will um, close in a time of worship.